The scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, verse 15 to the 23rd. Matthew 7, 15 to 23rd. And it reads, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Well, I, uh, I joked with my Sunday school class this morning, my ABF, I said, I think I know why Ken asked me to preach this morning. It's a hard text. But in all seriousness, those of you who know Pastor Ken, you know he doesn't shy away from hard texts. Uh, this is just my week to preach. But we do come to a hard text here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, for that reason, um, and this is true every Sunday, but I want to just make it explicit uh, now that if after the ser uh, sermon, after the service, you would like to talk with a pastor or an elder, those that were up front here or up front in, in the balcony praying, um, stick around and, and feel free to do so. just want to make that uh, offer to you this morning. Before we do take a look at God's word and uh, see what it has to say to us this morning, let's just take a moment and let's pray. Father, we do want to just pause before looking at your word. I want to ask for your help this morning, that we would hear your word as we ought to, that your word would have its intended effect in our lives. For some of us... Um, it may not be the same intended effect. You might have this word applied differently depending on who we are. I pray, Lord, though, that uh, your word would not return to you void. That is your promise, Isaiah 55. And so we pray that you, through your work of the Spirit and through your word, would do what you intend to do uh, as a result of us having looked at your word, considered your word, we ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one scholar uh, sums up pretty well uh, the feelings that many of us have, especially preachers, when looking at judgment passages in the Bible. 
passages like our passage for this morning in Matthew chapter 7. In fact, here's what he says about our passage for this morning. He says, some of us don't want to preach this text because we don't like it. Some of us don't want to preach this text because it aggravates every fiber in our theology. And some of us don't want to preach this text because it may drive some financially supporting or opinion-shaping people away from our church. Judgment passages are hard passages. And they're hard for both preachers and churchgoers. But the question for us this morning is, why? Why? Why might a text like our text for this morning, Matthew 7, 15 to 23, why might that be a hard passage for us? Well, there may be a number of reasons as to why that might be the case, but probably the most common reason is due to a faulty assumption in our theology. And that assumption is that Christians will be exempt from the day of judgment. And the reason this assumption does make some sense is because if you think about it, the Bible is very clear about how we're saved. It says we're saved by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ alone, and not by our works. And so a day of judgment in which we're judged based on the things that we've done while on earth, it's hard to imagine. It, it doesn't make sense to us. It doesn't fit our theology. And so naturally, we have a difficult time coming to terms with judgment passages like this one in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus says, I tell you the truth that everyone will have to give account in the day of judgment for every empty word that they have spoken. For by your words, you will be acquitted, and by your words, you will be condemned. Or this passage in John chapter 5. Jesus says, do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Or the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Or one of the last things that we hear Jesus say in Revelation chapter 22, he says this, Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. We will be judged by what we do. And when it comes to salvation and judgment, the Bible makes two things abundantly clear. Number one, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone, and not by our works. And number two, that one day, we will all be judged by what we do. We're saved by faith, we're judged by our deeds. And the reason that these two truths are not incompatible is because over and over again, the Bible teaches that good works are the inevitable result of genuine faith in Jesus Christ. So while we're saved by faith, the faith that truly saves 
is the faith that results in good works. So how should we respond to this truth? How should we respond to the truth that we will all one day be judged based off of what we've done? Well, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 23, we'll see in just a moment how we ought to respond. But before we do that, we need to take a look at what Jesus actually says in this passage. And what he says is that in the church, capital C, in the church, there are people who are deceivers. And there are people who are deceived. There are people in the church who pretend to be true disciples but aren't. And there are people in the church who presume to be true disciples but aren't. And in both cases, Jesus says that these two groups of people can be exposed and will be exposed by their deeds. Look at verse 15. He says, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Jesus says, watch out. Be on your guard. Practice discernment, because there are people in the church who pretend to be true disciples, but they aren't. They're deceivers. Now, specifically, Jesus has in mind false prophets. In the Bible, a prophet was anyone who claimed to have a message from God. This was anyone who claimed to speak for God. Sometimes this message involved a message about the future, but most of the time this message was a message for the present, for the here and now, a message for God's people now. And Jesus says that there are some in the church who have the outward appearance of being the real deal, but inwardly there's something else entirely. He says they might look like sheep, They might look like Christians, but inwardly, they're ferocious wolves. The word that Jesus actually uses here for ferocious, it carries the meaning of someone who uses other people for their own selfish purposes. And the fact that they're wolves, which is a sheep's natural-born enemy, indicates that these purposes, whatever they are, are deadly. These are people who, for whatever reason, want to consume or exploit the church for some selfish and deadly purpose. Maybe that purpose is to bolster one's reputation. Maybe it's to bolster some social standing or power. Or maybe it's for financial gain, influence, or maybe just for a sense of importance or grandiosity. Whatever it might be, Jesus says that they're using the church for their own purposes. And unfortunately, this is an all-too-common problem in the church today. Capital C, church. Pastors, preachers, and leaders who use the church for their own gain. Some of you already know in your minds who these individuals are. You can already think of who they might be. Here's how one former pastor describes it. He says, I accepted the call into ministry with a genuine desire to be faithful. I wanted to proclaim the gospel and to shepherd God's people, but there were other desires at work in my heart as well. These were hidden desires, tucked deep away, but they were there. Desires for significance, desires for fame and influence. 
And while there are many different kinds of temptations, my central temptation was clear. A deep and abiding desire for power. And the path to obtaining power is well-worn. Work hard, leverage talents, and capitalize on relationships. My desire for power was hard at work constructing a fantasy of me as a famous, powerful pastor. I had no fantasies about sitting in a hospital room grieving with a church member who had just lost a loved one. I had no fantasies of long hours of study in my office prayerfully preparing a sermon week in and week out. Rather, my fantasy usually involved a big stage and a big audience. I had a clearly mapped out strategy for how to accomplish this goal. After I'd spent a couple of years in ministry, my plan of becoming a powerful, famous pastor was well underway. The path isn't hard to find. Directions are laid out in numerous books, and workshops are readily available. I felt very secure and very well supported in my endeavor. The words of a former pastor, a well-known pastor, and in the age of the celebrity pastor in which we live, where everybody who supposedly is worth their salt has their own podcast and their own book sales and they're at all the big speaking engagements, we have all the more reason to heed Jesus' words to watch out for false prophets. Watch out for those who would use the church for their own personal gain. What's interesting, though, about Jesus' warning there in verse 15, is that he says that we will detect these false prophets not necessarily by evaluating their teaching or by looking out for heresy, although that's certainly true and God's people are called to do that. He says rather we'll detect them by evaluating the way that they live their lives. That's what Jesus means by the word fruit in verse 16. He says by their fruit... By the way they live, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Jesus says, if you want to know how to detect a false prophet, just watch how they live their lives. Just watch them. Because for a while, a wolf can pass pretty convincingly for a sheep, but eventually, like all fruit trees, its true nature will be revealed. Just as a good tree eventually produces good fruit, and a bad tree eventually produces bad fruit, so a wolf will eventually produce wolfish ways. Watch it. Watch it long enough, and it'll reveal itself. what exactly is this fruit that Jesus speaks of? What is this fruit that we're supposed to be looking out for, evaluating? Obviously, it has something to do with the way that they live their lives, but what exactly is it supposed to be? If it's not necessarily the content of their teaching, which doesn't seem to be the primary focus of Jesus' words here, well, then what is this fruit? Well, in a word, Christ-likeness. It's Christ-likeness. If they claim to speak for God, well, then they ought to bear some family resemblances. And so the question 
that you and I ought to be asking of these people is not simply do they have sound theology, although that's an important question. More fundamentally, we need to be asking, do they live like Jesus? Do they walk as Jesus walked? Because good theology can be faked, but good fruit, Jesus says, it can't be faked. And so Jesus is saying to us this morning, especially in the age of the celebrity pastor, look for good fruit. Watch how they live their lives. Don't just look for a person's outward gifts or their talents and their, their leadership abilities, those things that all too easily impress us. Look instead for things like humility and mercy, compassion. Don't be fooled by someone's vast knowledge and eloquent speech and their, their doctoral degrees. Look instead for gentleness, self-control, kindness, especially under the pressures of ministry. And don't be taken in by charisma or big personality or attractive vision casting, those things that you can find endless conferences about. Look instead for a genuine love of God and a love of others. Look for good fruit. And then there's that part in the text that makes us a little bit uncomfortable. Jesus says that these false prophets who use the church for their own selfish purposes, if unrepentant, will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 19. He says, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. It's a harsh words. It's natural for us to wonder about some of the elements in verses like this one, like in verse 19. For example, it's natural for us to wonder, well, is the fire meant to be taken literally? Or, or maybe, maybe it's meant to be taken metaphorically. What about the nature of hell. What's hell exactly like? How, how do we know? And similar questions about the fate of the lost and about the nature of hell. And those are all good questions. And they're all good questions to ask in time. But the main point that Jesus is making here in verse 19 is that a day is coming in which we will all stand before God's judgment seat and have to give an account for how we lived our lives. And he says that like some of the false prophets... Some people will be exposed as frauds and cast into the fire. Those are his words. And so Jesus says that there are people in the church who pretend to be true disciples, but they aren't. They're deceivers. But he also says that there are people in the church who presume to be true disciples, but aren't. They're the deceived. And the reason that they're deceived is because they're placing their hope for salvation in two things, an empty profession of faith and a list of religious activities. Look at verse 21. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, only the one who does the will of the Father. You see, for Jesus, what, what matters is not simply what we say, what we profess, but what we do. It's not simply for Jesus about affirming right beliefs or right doctrines, 
It's about living out those right doctrines, those right beliefs. Because some of us, we might say that Jesus is our Lord, and we might even really mean it. But if our lives don't reflect the Lordship of Christ, Jesus says they're just empty words. And he says it's not those who merely profess faith who enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those whose lives actually reflect that faith. Or as he puts it in verse 21, it's only those who do the will of the Father. Obviously, that raises the question, doesn't it? What does it mean to do the will of the Father? What exactly does Jesus mean there, to do the will of the Father? Well, obviously, it's something that we are expected to do. And the fact that it's contrasted with just this mere, verbal, empty profession of Lord, Lord, makes that even more abundantly clear. So clearly, doing the will of the Father is something that we're called to do. So what is it? Well, there are three reasons why I think doing the will of the Father is meant to be equated with doing what Jesus says. It's meant to be equated with obeying Jesus. And the first reason why I think that has to do with the context, the context in which our current passage appears. The paragraph immediately following our current passage is all about how a person's fate is directly determined by whether or not they do, or as Jesus puts it, practices what he says. Their fate is tied to whether or not they do what Jesus says to do. The one who does what Jesus says in the next paragraph, their life is spared. The one who doesn't is destroyed. And so we see that a person's fate is directly tied to whether or not they obey Jesus, whether or not they do what he says. The second reason why I think doing the will of the Father is to be equated with obeying Jesus is because in Luke's version of our current passage, Jesus adds this in Luke 6.46. You don't need to turn there. Listen to what he says. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Same profession of faith. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? So in Luke's version of this passage, calling Jesus Lord, Lord, saying Lord, Lord, ought to result in doing what Jesus says. And in Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount, calling Jesus Lord, Lord, ought to result in doing the will of the Father. They're not actually saying two different things, They're saying the same thing two different ways. And the third reason, the last reason why I think doing the will of the Father means doing what Jesus says is because this is exactly what the Father told the disciples to do in Matthew chapter 17, verse 5. During Jesus' transfiguration, the Father says this. He says, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Do what he says. Obey him. So what does it mean to do the will of the Father? It means to do what Jesus says. It means to obey Jesus. And so the warning for us this morning is clear. It's not enough to simply say Jesus is Lord. We have to do what he says. We have to obey him. Because he says it's not those who simply profess Lord, Lord, who enter the kingdom of heaven, 
It's only those who do the will of the Father. It's only those who do what Jesus says. Well, in John Bunyan's classic, The Pilgrim's Progress, the characters Christian and faithful, they meet a fellow traveler along the road to the celestial city. The traveler's name is Talkative. And based on Talkative's eloquent speech and his sound theology and his impressive uh, knowledge of the Bible, Faithful says to Christian, he says, Wow, what a brave companion we have. Surely this man will make a very excellent pilgrim. But Christian sees right through the facade. And he says to Faithful, he says, This man talks of prayer. And he talks of repentance and of faith and of the new birth. But he knows but only to talk of them. He's a mere talker. And so on the day of judgment, the hope of the deceived, of those who presume themselves to be disciples but aren't, is found in their empty profession of faith. They're just like talkative in the Pilgrim's Progress. All talk. But Jesus says that their hope also rests on certain religious activities. Look at verse 22. He says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? For me, probably the most challenging and troubling verse in this entire passage is found right here in verse 22. And the reason why I think it's so troubling is because of the genuine surprise, the genuine shock of those who are standing before Jesus. They're they're utterly surprised at what Jesus says to them. They're, They're completely shocked by the verdict, I never knew you. There's no deception in what they say. They're not trying to deceive anybody. They really genuinely thought what they were doing in Jesus' name was the real deal. They really thought they were following Jesus. And they even point to a list of religious activities or religious accomplishments to prove it. And so they point to their prophesying, they point to their exorcisms and their miracle workings, all done in Jesus' name. It's a pretty impressive resume. What they hear in verse 23 shocks them. Jesus says, Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Jesus says that the very thing that they thought proved their relationship with Jesus amounted to nothing more than lawlessness. It it amounted to nothing more than doing evil. That's what he says at the end of verse 23. He doesn't say that what they do, they didn't actually do. He acknowledges, yeah, you did these things, but it amounts to nothing more than lawlessness. It's a hard passage, it's a hard verse. The question is why? Why doesn't Jesus accept the list of of activities that they present to him? Why doesn't he accept those things as evidence of genuine faith, as evidence of a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ? Well, number one, because those religious activities, believe it or not, can can be performed by people who don't know Jesus. All three of those activities can be done by people who don't know Jesus. 
We see this all throughout the Bible. We don't have time this morning to look at all the examples, but in uh, Matthew's gospel alone, we see all three of these activities being done by people who don't know Jesus. All three of them, by non-Christians. So by themselves, they don't prove that someone has an authentic relationship with Jesus. The second reason why he doesn't accept these things as, as proof of genuine faith is because they don't equate to doing the will of the Father. They don't equate to doing what Jesus says. Jesus never said, create a checklist of religious activities and work really hard to accomplish them. He never said that. He said, obey me in everything. He never said that he was settled for partial obedience, a respectable list of things that we've done. He says he wants total obedience. Or this is the way he puts it in Matthew 16. He says, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would be my disciple, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. He wants us to lose our lives. He wants all of us, our entire lives, all obedience, not just partial obedience. Being confronted with Jesus' words this morning makes it abundantly clear that there are people today, many people, who are falsely assured of their salvation. They're falsely assured. They might point to things, that, or they might not point to things like the list here, prophecy and exorcisms or miracle workings. They might not point to those things, but they might say to Jesus in the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, did we not go to church like we were supposed to? Did we not tithe like we were supposed to? Did we not serve? Did we not fight for all the right causes like we were supposed to? Only to hear Jesus say, I never knew you. And the reason that Jesus will say to some on that day, I never knew you, is not because any of those religious activities are wrong in and of themselves. In fact, they're not. Those are good things. Things that Jesus expects his people to do. They're all good things. But in and of themselves, they don't prove that someone has a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. Because all those things, going to church, giving, serving, Fighting for the right causes, all good things, but those things in and of themselves can be done by people who don't know Jesus. And as long as we continue to promote the idea that the Christian life can be boiled down to a certain checklist of religious accomplishments instead of the all-encompassing, all-demanding imperative to obey Jesus in every area of life, well, then we will continue to see people falsely assured of their salvation. Because Jesus isn't after a checklist, he's after our obedience. He's after our whole lives. He wants all of it. In a Desiring God article entitled Fatal Dreams of the Religious Lost, writer Greg Morse says this. He says, is any lostness worse than remaining lost while believing you're found? Of all those who finally travel the broad way to destruction, are any so wretched as those who sang Christian songs, prayed Christian prayers, and sat under countless Christian sermons? 
The man sipping sand in the desert because he thinks he holds a cup of water is the most tragic and pitiable of sights. To plunge thoughtlessly into the next life is one horror. To play the saint and still be deceived is quite another. Well, there was a time I wouldn't have believed that such people existed, least of all, that I was one of them. Certainly, all who audibly called upon Jesus as Lord would be saved, so why else would anybody show up each Sunday morning? But there it stood before me, glowing as if engraved in fire, Jesus' own words in Matthew 7, giving us a transcript of some on the day of judgment. So I read it. I read it again and again. No verse had ever made me lose sleep before. I realized that I must be one of the many that Jesus mentions in verse 22. I was like so many sermon hearers, Bible readers, and synagogue attenders of Jesus' day. I was lost in a dream, traveling toward hell in church clothes. I merely dreamt of eternal safety. But God, but God, as I pray for many who read this, woke me up through his word. At the end of the greatest sermon ever preached, Jesus exposed three fatal dreams that I dreamt as one of the religious lost. Dreams that mere intellectualism, mere emotionalism, and mere activism are solid grounds for the hope of my salvation. So, how are we supposed to respond to Jesus' words? That's the question that I asked at the beginning of the sermon. How are we supposed to respond to this? To the truth that we will all stand before God someday and be held accountable for what we've done. Well, aside from simply telling us what the day of judgment will look like for false believers, Jesus is doing more than just that. He's issuing us a warning. And by presenting this passage as a mirror, he's calling each one of us to examine ourselves. To look into the mirror and to examine ourselves. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Well, the test that Jesus has for us this morning is clear. He's asking us whether or not we obey him. He's asking us whether or not we, we do what he says. He's asking us whether or not our walk matches our talk. A couple of things I want to say about this test. The first is this. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that there's only been one person capable of obeying perfectly. That person was Jesus Christ. That's the reason why we follow him. He obeyed perfectly. So this morning, the test that Jesus is presenting to us is not a call for flawless obedience or for sinless perfection. That's not what it's about. But it is a test about total obedience. It's about an obedience that increasingly, through the power of the Holy Spirit, seeks to bring every aspect of our lives under the lordship of Christ. It's not about flawless obedience but it is about total obedience, that every aspect of our lives, nothing is without 
his influence, his lordship. It's all under his lordship. And he wants, that, he wants to see that increasingly more and more. Second thing I want to say about the test is that it is extremely important to note that the Bible makes clear that no one is saved by their works. No one. We're saved by our faith. But the Bible also makes abundantly clear that the faith that truly saves is the faith that results in good works. And the good works that Jesus is looking for is obedience to do what he says. So what do we do if we fail the test? What if we honestly look at ourselves and we say, my walk does not match my talk. I, I don't pass this test. Again, we're not talking about sinless perfection, but what if we find that we don't pass the test? Well, in God's mercy, he extends us a do-over. It's called repentance. In Matthew 3, 8, the Bible says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So if we fail the test, we need to repent. We need to repent, and then by faith, we need to grab hold of the forgiveness that Christ offered us on the cross, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, we need to move forward in renewed obedience. We repent, we hold by faith, the forgiveness that he offered us, and we, we, we move forward in renewed obedience. Consider that a mercy. If you examine yourselves, and you say, I don't pass the test. So we need to examine ourselves this morning to see whether, as Paul says, we are in the faith. Because the faith that saves is the faith that obeys. Let's pray this morning. Father, we recognize we were presented with weighty words of Jesus here. Words that penetrate deep into our hearts, that call us to examine ourselves honestly. I pray, Lord, that this passage would have its intended effect on our lives. We pray, Lord, that for those of us who are genuinely following Jesus, that this passage would be a confirmation. Even if we recognize that we, we don't obey perfectly, that we cast ourselves on you for forgiveness, the power of the Spirit, we, we continue to obey you. For those, Lord, who aren't following you, would you use this text to show them that? That they would now, today, throw themselves in the mercy of Jesus and receive the gift of salvation, the offer of forgiveness that he offers all people. We ask that you would do this through the work of your spirit because you are merciful. Thank you for your word, Lord. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.